There's a, it's called the Ork Pansa, end of Lavasa. It's a time when uh, we consider it in the monastery or use these, these markers, like Uposita days, moon days, and use them as, as yeah. marks. Use your way of just reviewing what's going on, what you've been through how regularly we come back to the same place, the same uh, search, the same aspirations. If we cultivate through the feelings we have, situations that arise in our lives, the meditation practice, so we keep questioning what are, the, what, are, what are these things trying to tell us if we understand them correctly we penetrate them correctly they come back to the same place the place of stillness the place of timelessness the place of nothing the immediacy the sense of clarity the openness it's there when we step outside the time frame circumstances internal and external you know often our, our life in the temporal circumstantial realm is is fraught with uh, dangers, with hazards, with worries, with joys, powerful feelings and, and uh, struggles, hopes, successes and failures. It's a world, it's a world of great, great uh, colour and movement and vibration. It's a world in which we take to be the real one, the one of real things solid, material, physical things that happen outside of ourselves. And I am a physical thing, 
in a, you know, on a physical planet, and there are other physical things around me. You know, this is the real world. And it's the world, in this, in this way of experiencing things in this way, then things exist in time. There's yesterday and there's tomorrow. And there's the recognizable people. And we can say this is the same person as he was yesterday. And we, you know, he's going to be the same person tomorrow. And so on. And places and countries and towns and nature and so on. It seems that the real world is a world of time, world of continuity. It's also a world that has no, no real end to it. It goes on and on and on. There's a world that has no final conclusion to it. It's a world in which there's always kind of loose ends and unresolved things and things that we're beginning and things we're halfway through and things that we've think we've finished, and yet the final picture is incomplete. It's a world that is, we say, it's innately unfulfilled, incomplete, or dukkha. It's, uh, it's not finalized. In it, finally, as you, as you experience yourself in that world, there's always something has to be done, something not yet worked out, something we feel sad about, something we feel we want to get on with, something we regret. It's like that. This is the way we call it, this is the current real world. And that very unresolved pang, or the excitement, the wanting to get on with this, very much fixates our attention in it. We get caught by that, that passion we get fixated in it so we very much involve ourselves with the reality of it and invest in it and seek things in it and then of course as we do that we find that sometimes our hopes are dashed our expectations aren't quite fulfilled and yet we still feel it's possible that it will be so we keep going in that until of course we 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 pass away or things change it's like that. As you meditate, as you, you enter the practice through that door, the door of meditation, when you really, what is the world? Say so it's what's remembered, it's what's imagined, it's what's conceived of. When we close our eyes, then the experience of myself being in the world is, is a notion. It's something made up of particular memories, particular mind-created things, isn't it? My friends are my memories. My enemies are my dreads, my expectations. My, my things that I'm excited about, you can see, is really my desire, my longing, whether it's a good or a bad one, it's like that. And in meditation we see that this is a different world. Or perhaps it's the same one being seen through a different lens, if you like. Perhaps the, the apparent real world is just an assembly, a kind of way in which the sense, sensory fields are organized, are, are arranged. 
So often in the apparent real world, we don't notice so much how much our mind is creating these things. Things seem to be independent from our mind. When we meditate, then suddenly everything seems to be the mind. Seems to be the more we cultivate that way, we can recognize the, the, the mind constructions which bring up memories and hopes and prejudices, scenarios repeated over and over again. And then perhaps as we cultivate more steadily, some of these two seem to come together, these two different worlds kind of come together. You see that people mean something to us. They mean things like friendship or fear or someone who's bigger than me. And it makes me feel small and little. Or something that, that means delight. Or something that means freedom and space. Or something that means success. Or something that means failure. And as we cultivate, we can recognize that the, you know, the real physical world is, becomes a kind of like, almost like a mythology of our own inner stuff which is real. Perhaps we don't have to say that. Perhaps we don't have to choose which is real. Perhaps we can say there are different organizations, the different modalities, the different ways in which experience can be interpreted. One we say through the external senses and consciousness, and one through the quality of mindfulness and awareness of the mind. Um, but in terms of when one's main concern one's main interest is in resolving the sense of dukkha or realizing that there could be an end to this there could be a, a quality of complete peace or fulfillment or wholeness then it's probably we, we realize that just the ordinary interpretation of the world is not going to do it. Not gonna, it must always be that way. It must always be something that's not finished yet, something that's fragile, even when it's, and it's good and it's happy and it's well and it's healthy and it's loving. There's the understanding that it, it might break up, it might end, protected. So there's that little suffering in that, even when it's lovely. So that, that way of figuring the world, which is, is very good for in, some, you know, in terms of um, talking and thinking and seeing and acting, is not, doesn't bring around the final cessation of dukkha. It's only through, through the awareness that we cultivate, through mindfulness, through samadhi, this particular training, cultivation that we can recognize, that we can bring this around. Because then as we cultivate, we're becoming more aware of the, the patterns of fear, of agitation, of worry, of guilt, of longing, of need that, that occur. 
and actually witnessing them just as as surges, as kind of feelings and patterns in, in consciousness that arise and pass. This takes quite a lot of honesty actually, because it is there's a very strong power and a capability to make these uh, fears and longings into real things, real people, real events, outside of me, nothing to do with me, independent of my mind. So it, it's a matter of practice. Often, why, we li- why community and fellowship is so exalted by the Buddha is because when we begin to recognize how other people see things, the same apparent physical things in very different ways, the same actions and gestures and scenarios in very different ways, it causes us to to get an insight into how I'm organizing this, how my mind is actually creating it, but certainly structuring it. What one person finds as as a delight experience, another person finds as boring or as uh, chaotic, or as meaningless, or someone finds as funny, someone else seems will find as silly, or someone finds as gracious, another part, person may experience as being uh, formal. And in, certainly in these monasteries, we can, when you're really close up to cultivating awareness, it's uh, it's very revealing how much and how solid these these perceptions can be. The whole sense of of uh, and and so and so and often not because they seem so solid and obvious to us, we don't even consider discussing them because we think of course everybody you know, it's nothing there to be discussed, it's actually real. So often it would have really encouraged us to to say how it is, even if uh, if we think it's obvious. I've never ever in my monastic life experienced a community whose realities are the same. And yet everyone would think, well yeah, of course. I've never actually experienced that when everybody agrees on it. <laughs> And sometimes the polarization is is staggering. <laughs> People whose surely whose intention is very much on the same thing, whose you think dress the same, uh, go to the same events, living in the same little building, learning here in the same teachings, eating the same food, going to the same rhythms a day, and yet one person can feel this is about about. Um, you know, getting things done on power or authority, and other person can feel it's about something about space and love and expansion. You know, uh, you know feel it's a sense of honour that's required, or some person feels it's a sense of duty that's required. Or and and then we can always point to the evidence that backs up our our view. So. This is called 
papancha. The Buddha had a word for it. It's called papancha, which means uh, projection, projection, proliferation. The way in which the unresolved qualities of our own mind are projected outwards and externalized. And uh, when there's unknowing, ignorance, then we don't even realize it's happened. We think that the, that process has happened and we don't even realize that those things that seem to be outside of us are really parts of our own unresolved karma that we're projecting out and often failing to, to take responsibility for. So I, I remember I had a time just one one kind of series of incidents when I was I went to a small very small monastery it wasn't even a monastery it was just a kind of little uh, a residence in the country and I went there for the bus and the idea was to have a, just an easy sort of retreat easy retreat period just nothing much to do just meditate be in the country oh this sounds nice <laughs> You know, so my perspective on it was great. You know, a chance to meditate, nothing much to do, be in the country, simple life. You know. And so uh, then they said, well, you know, take, take Nana Garaka along. So I thought, well, who's really worked hard? And somebody looks like they're having a bit of a miserable time, could do with a break. And so <laughs> I chose this and I said, would you like to come? He said, yes, all right. So then he went with me, and then his his perception was that I'd take him down there to torment him. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I could kind of get him on his own, and then I could kind of, you know, play games with his mind or play trips on him, have power over him, and push him around, this kind of thing. So he had this kind of thing happening for him, and I couldn't, you know, he didn't say this is what he had going. But, you know, so we happily went, well, not, was happy for about three days until <laughs> <laughs> suddenly the, the two realities collided. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd say, well, okay, well, let's have a sitting this afternoon. And that to him was like, I'm ordering you, you know, I'm exerting my power over you. Now I'm going to get you to sit there and you have to endure it for hours on end rather than, hey, nothing happened today, let's just sit and meditate. Wouldn't that be a nice thing? Yeah. Maybe we can, you know, talk about Dhamma or something. It was like, so that was his interpretation was rather like that. So this, this went on for weeks on end, actually. And no matter what one did, it could always be interpreted through that, through that lens, through that way of seeing it. You know, as being patronizing or being intimidating or making fun of or ignoring, you know, so when I thought, well, be spacious, leave him alone, it was ignoring. And I thought, be cheerful, cheer him up, it was making fun of. And I thought, if he was very clear and precise, it was, uh, you know, power and authority. And clearly the man had problems. (laughs) 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 And... uh, Oh, late, later on, it, it was became it was became known that you know this person had a lot of, a lot of trouble with his father and this kind of thing. You know, so that, that this was embedded in them. This sense of 
somebody who who is seen who's seen as being his senior is someone who kind of you know has this power thing going on you and will push you into things that you don't want to do but of course in yourself you, you know you, so you don't feel senior to anything you know you're not looking in terms of senior and junior, just you know, a couple of humans. But on one level, you could say definitely, I'm, I was senior, he was junior. But that wasn't in my mind. Was, you know, I think, think it, you know, wherever you are, I don't feel myself. I don't, being senior is not a perception. In, I'm, you know, it's common in my mind, only on certain conventional levels. But it certainly wasn't something that was happening for me. You know. But am I or am I not? It depends on how you want to organize it, what, what particular definitions you want are paramount in your mind. And if you're someone who feels that sense of, of you know, it being inferior or being intimidated or not being so good <coughs> as, then we tend to see thick people in terms of power, bigger, more senior, more authority than us. And perhaps we don't recognise that. And I suppose most of us have had, you know, do have lots of problems with, be, you know, in our in our society, in our family, in our relationships, in our jobs. We have bosses and teachers and bigger people <coughs> and people who tell us to do things we don't want to do and then punish us for failing at them. So we we do have a lot of this problem with with power figures, and you only have to see someone in that way, and, and lo and behold, the whole thing can start up again and all of those emotions then get projected onto this particular person and it's true you can assemble you can always assemble a reality out of it you can manage to avoid or screen off or misinterpret anything that doesn't fit into that particular picture and my mind can do this um, you know, this is called prapancha. And the Buddha said there are three basic ways in which it forms. One is called tanha prapancha, which means the doing it around desire. Either, either aversion, when I say desire, I mean very broadly wanting or not wanting. So we can see things in terms of things being wantable or not wantable, desirable or irritating. So we can actually that program can be in our mind and then every, everything can be interpreted in those terms. Things are desirable or not desirable. And then, you know, we see, we experience it in that way. And we only see and notice things that can be interpreted in that way. We can look at people as, as desire objects. Very, very common. Food, people, um, events, do I like it or do I not, do I want it or do I not want it, or aversion objects. Uh, then the other, the other two, ditti, is ditti papancha means have views. This means that, that anything that is experienced is, we have a view about it, like, oh, that means that. We get a kind of ideological event occurring around things. Something happens, oh this means you've got to do that. Or something happens in 
we we have a we we can have a kind of ideological viewpoint on it. I think everything should be this way. We see something happening that's not fair. We we so this is a view, isn't it? Fair is what fair is a, is an idea. So you don't look at a bush and say it's not fair. You know that your this flower is bigger than that one. That's not fair. But we can look at humans like that, saying it's not fair that. He sits here and he sits, she, he, she sits there. That's not fair. <coughs> but we look at somebody who's five foot nine and say, don't say it's not fair that you're smaller than somebody who's six foot. But we, we can we can so we probably don't notice that when we're looking at that through that particular view viewfinder. So we have these kind of ideologies. Fairness is one of them. My rights is one of them, you know, these other things. And its views are about uh, me, the way I see things. So the world, people and events are interpreted through my view, which may be a cynical view, it may be a depressed view, it may be some kind of political ideology, it may be a spiritual ideology of some kind. You know, we can see everybody as, as all sentient beings who need to be saved. Or we can see everybody as bags of meat with oozing putrescence out of nine orifices. And, you know, which is not very nice kind of view. But <laughs> <laughs> or we can see beings every having Buddha nature or as, as the uh, uh, corrupted host of Mara. So, the, it, it, so these can be, but every, but when we have these this ditti papancha, it means that things keep being interpreted in that way. This may be concerned with our our job, our occupation. I'm sure that uh, you know um, a naturalist will look at a forest very different from a, a forest from a, a lumberjack. You would be, oh, that's a nice bit of timber there. You know, that would make good houses or good boats. Another person would say, well, it's a lovely, it's an abies or something like that, you know, a lovely fir tree or a rare specimen or, you know. These are views, aren't they? You can see that they, both of them are correct in some ways, but, but as long as, if we remain stuck in those, then everything can be, is interpreted only through that particular viewfinder and everything it depends on who we feel ourselves to, to, to be our position and very often the, the, desert, the kind of proliferation of views is there because it, it kind of establishes us I know this, I know that. This is the way I see it this way. And we feel there's a sense of kind of uh, solidity, even if your view is, is utter negativity or despair, cynicism, or. or uh, and you, you, you get a kind of a feeling of solidity about really knowing that everything is utterly rotten and a waste of time. And you feel, I'm right. <laughs> You know, so that sometimes the, even the most 
despairing view is better than not having one. It still gives you a position in which you feel you're right and you've seen it and anybody who doesn't agree with this is naive or foolish or uneducated. Now we can have views about, certainly about monasteries and about Buddhism and about people and about chanting and meditating and systems and which one you should do and why you don't need this and this is outmoded and this is the real practice and so on. The third kind of papancha is called mana, which means conceit. Conceit means it's referring to our image of ourselves. It doesn't just mean pride, it means we can conceive ourselves as being better or worse or the same as. This means we've got some kind of image or impression of ourselves that then uh, we keep uh, acts, or the need for that, or the desire for that, is how we interpret the world. So we may even conceive ourselves as being a man, you know, or a woman which is it's really a, it's a conceit <laughs> it means it's a, it's a night what, what's the man you know what is the man and what is the woman but then we can take these kind of things and say I'm a man I know what it's like women you know, wouldn't understand this a mere woman wouldn't know how to do that this is man's work man understands what man's got to do what man's got to do women should stay at home and cook the baby and <laughs> And whatever things like that, <laughs> and then women can say, "Well, I'm women. Women have understand. Women understand. Have an intuitive knowledge of things. We know what it feels like, and you know, men wouldn't understand this, and so on. And then these can be, you know, they're real enough. In some ways, we can interpret the world in that way. Well, we can say, well, I'm a monk, or I'm the abbot. I'm the abbot here. I know what's going on. I've been a monk for twenty years." This is who I am. You can't tell me what to do. I know what I'm doing, and I'm in charge, and so on. (laughs) This kind of thing. So then everything can be interpreted in that sense, can't it? I'm in charge. They've got to obey me. I'm in charge. I know know what's going on. They've got to follow what I'm doing. I'm in charge. It looks like they're not following what I'm doing. You know, so then we get where people are neither following nor not following. Actually, they're not in that frame. They're going around their lives doing what they're doing. They're not thinking, I'm going to not follow. <laughs> you know, but so you can sort of interpret it that way. Sometimes when I, uh, this happens in my mind, <laughs> I see people doing things. Say, I've told him so many times to do that, and he's not doing it. He's obviously decided to kind of rebel. <laughs> You know, and actually the person just forgotten or didn't listen very hard or doesn't care. <laughs> but he's not actually making a deliberate act of, I know what I'm going to do, I'm going to rebel today. And yet from the point of view of the, the conceit, of this is what I am, everything can be taken as a personal affront upon me, a personal attack upon my dignity and my power as being who I am in charge, ultimately me myself and see how 
painful as it can be. And this massive inflation experience of self, which doesn't have to be wonderful, it can be, uh, it can be ghastly. You know? uh, we have massive paranoias as a conceit. Like, I'm the stupidest, worst person in the world. I'm the laziest person everybody hates. Did you see the way he looked at me then? That was obviously an expression of his deep contempt. You know, you, somebody stretches their neck and looks the way he looked at me. It was a sign of his deep hatred and contempt for me. So that you know, we interpret actions and events in those ways. And we can always assemble it like that. You know, you can find somebody disrobed because they didn't get given a boiled sweet. <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, that somebody, they got left out or forgotten and they interpret this as being a sign of the deep contempt and hatred and how that people hold them in. I remember one of the moments he disrobed because uh, Lizzie's technical reason was he'd been asked to to, in the, in, to move out of his room to another room. And he said, that's it. You treat me like that, I'm off. <laughs> <laughs> to him that meant, you know, a complete eva- invasion of his, of his territory and uh, total disregard for his personal privacy and his rights. And if you're going to treat me like that, like I'm just some kind of pig or cow to be thrown around, that's what you think of me, I'm off. And yet the person who asked him thought, well, you have these rooms, uh, you know, I've got to lodge this senior monk who's come. So generally the thing is the junior monk will move around. This is part of our thing, you know. So you give a room to some visitor, a guest, and the junior monk moves to somewhere else. You know, it's quite normal. But if, you're, if your mind is... is is primed in that way, then you can see these things as deep insults or affronts to one's dignity. Now you could actually see it as possible to see it as a kind of joy. Oh, how nice! I can give, you know, I can give something to this this visiting monk. What a nice thing to do! You could actually be seen that way, couldn't it? My chance, my opportunity to do something beautiful. So the the world as we live our lives and we experience suffering and we sometimes you see how how time and time again the same kind of self images keep coming up the same repeated views the same archetypal longing or aversion keeps coming up you begin to get the point something's going on here <laughs> it's not what you see it's it's in it's called papancha it's called uh, projection proliferation and this, in some ways, is a natural uh, aspect of, of the ordinary realm of, of consciousness. You know, so before it gets to this rather polluted and corrupted state of, of psychological disorder, this the very ordinary sense consciousness in some way has this projecting or um, diversifying quality to it. So when we look at something, this is definitely a three-dimensional human being sitting out there in front of me, I'm sitting here, there he is. When actually, if we looked at it a little more, kind of pared it down, we could say, I can see a shape, I see some colours. You know, I see this massive field of strange colours and shapes. 
that's visual experience. There is that. There's not, you know, there's not even anybody seeing it. There's just this, this kind of visual field. But you know, this is assembled. This is organized into definite, distinctive forms. Sitting on a carpet, and these are people. You know, and they have. They're not just two-dimensional objects. They've got innards and guts, and they they squeak if you poke them. <laughs> And then if you act in that way, you find it's true. It comes true. (laughs) (laughs) This also is papancha. This is the natural, if you like, the the ordinary proliferation of consciousness, which is believed in utterly. And for most events, it stands up. It kind of has a a reality to it. Um, I think... uh, (laughs) But then when it comes down to uh, mental events, then it be, the whole thing becomes much more uh, precarious, doesn't it? Mind consciousness. Eye consciousness is <coughs> certainly has this kind of proliferated quality to it. Things are interpreted rather than really seeing purely as they are. Sound is interpreted. Touch is interpreted. Body, body touch. So, what makes you feel you have a body right now? Certain physical sensations are occurring that are interpreted as your leg, your hand, your back, your cheek, your eye, and so on. And that is done immediately, isn't it? The perception is immediate. If you really focus on it in your meditation, you don't know what it is, really. It's kind of something you'd call warm or tingling or compacted or expansive and the rest of it is interpretation now as long as these things are are held as realities then whether they're pleasant or unpleasant what is the always the result is that there is some person who sees some person who hears some person who who receives those thoughts that is always the case as long as in that level in that way of experiencing consciousness there's always somebody who is conscious of the thing and this so there's this and that is taken so naturally because every every conscious act affirms it sometimes it's a thinker sometimes it's a seer sometimes it's a hearer a smeller a taster or a feeler and the me is the composite of all these things who appears to be solid and now he's hearing and thinking and seeing and touching and tasting and feeling and, and he, you know, there he is and he's male in this case most of the time <laughs> <laughs> so then and who's that and what do we do with that and what's he supposed to be doing and where does he find what's his purpose what happens to him when he dies? And what's he going to do with his life? And what does he do when unpleasant things happen? How does he protect himself from those things? How does he manage to stop the unpleasant things and those beautiful sights and touches and tastes? How does he stop them going away? How does he manage to shut off those horrible sounds, those disgusting odours? What about those long, boring feelings? What about those weird, churning emotions that he's stuck with? What about that stupid thinking that goes on all the time? How can he ever get out of this? 
And this is the, or how does he find fulfillment? And then we're back to these, this is the existential experience of dukkha, the sense of me. Now, there's some, we can, uh, the Buddha very simply said, well, when there's no, there's no eye organ, when there's no eye, no, eye, no, no visual object, and no eye consciousness, then the sense of being the seer does not arise. <laughs> when there's no ear, no hearing, and no heard object, the sense of being the hearer does not arise. When there's no mind, no mind object, no mind consciousness, being the thinker does not arise. I mean, you're very well saying, well, yeah, but you know, I've got eyes and ears in the mind. So how, how does that occur? It's just a recognition that the sense of self depends upon this consciousness experience. And if we look at it more carefully, we can recognize that, of course, the I is not a constant quality. Like my eyes are, prob- are not as good as some people's eyes. I, my eyes are slightly short-sighted. So my eye consciousness is a bit different. I'm also partially colorblind. So some sort of browns and greens sometimes get blurred up. So somebody says, look at that, look at that lovely green. Can you, you know, what, what green? You know? Or they put the two together and I can't see which is which. So where does brown, do they exist or not exist? We can see to some extent the eye, the eye consciousness and the eye organ will, very, will affect the seer. So sometimes one can, as a seer one can feel rather inadequate, not being able to see or to hear. So this, the sense of, our, of me is, a, is, is affected by the, the, the sense base, the sense organ and the sense consciousness, its quality. If one can think, one is good at thinking, then the thinker, we feel very pleased with thinking. If we've got a uh, mind that can organize thoughts, then thinking can be a, a kind of a fascinating experience, delightful experience. Or if, you, if you're not, not good at that, then it can be confusing and a waste of time. And one can feel intimidated by other people who can think well. You can feel lesser. So your, your sense of yourself is, can be dependent upon those things. Now when it comes down to, uh, we have these, we call the external sense bases, and the, the, the mysterious one is the, the sixth sense base, the mind, which is where, of course, which is, which is the one that receives all the other senses and interprets them, and also has its own business going on. It's thinking, it's, if you like, it's the, the, the thinking, it creates this immaterial stuff like thoughts, emotions, plans, um, patterns of thought and behavior. And the mind doesn't actually seem to, it's not the brain, it's not something we say, we say mind is different from brain. Brain is a kind of physical flesh organ, the mind is not a flesh organ. And the mind is where we recognize, this is where we experience our, our suffering. 
It's not really because of the eye organ or the ear organ or the nose, it's because of the mind, it's because of love and hate, it's because of fear and guilt, it's because of worry and anticipation and things like that. So these are mind, aren't they? We all recognize that. So is it now when the Buddha says when there's no mind, then this doesn't occur. Is it possible that there can be no mind? Or that the mind can be dis- uh, changed? We, uh, because an, we would probably, without thinking about it very much, assume the mind is, is a kind of thing. Some kind of, my mind is this way. Actually, mind or mano is a pattern, isn't it? It's a, it's a conditioned pattern. It's not really a, a, like a, a thing in itself, it's just a, a pattern of way, way in which experiences get interpreted. And it's connected to language, it's con- connected to the kind of concepts that we have that have been put into us, it's connected to emotions, and somehow out of all this, organizing patterns occur. Things can be known, conceived of. It's the conceiver. And some things we can't conceive of. We say we can't conceive of it. They're mind-blowing, aren't they? Say, my mind blew my mind. What is the nature of God? What is Nibbana? Why am I born? What hap- then what happens to the mind? The Buddha would say, then the mind dissolves. And he described his own enlightenment saying, my mind has gone to complete dissolution. To dissolution has gone my mind. The mind can be broken up or dissolved because the mind is not a lump at all but purely a pattern and that pattern can be depatterned. So we can experience the ending of the mind. So we notice, for example, in something that we can't conceive of, what happens when you come to that point? You say, my mind stops. You haven't got a pattern. You haven't got a way to, you say, I can't get my mind around that. I can't, I can't understand it. I can't conceive it. The mind's pattern stops. You can't process it. This is what is meant by the dissolution of mind, or the stopping of mind. It's not kind of like blowing your brains out. It's not that something's died. It's just that a particular pattern is ended or is dissolved. (coughs) And when that pattern is dissolved, then there's no, there's nothing, you know, you you can't really worry about something you can't conceive of or long for it or hate it or anything. You can't do projecting onto it because it, it can't be formed as an object. So therefore you can't use it as something to project longing or aversion or conceit or a view about. And this was very much the experience that the Buddha pointed towards as this is the unconditioned, the unprogrammed, the depatterned something that we can experience 
the ending of the mind is something we can experience because in Buddha Dharma you have different you know the mind in this sense just means the arising and the ending of the mind we can be aware of the movements of the mind as we meditate we can watch the mind we can say my mind is stopped if it's stopped how do you know it you say my mind is busy if you actually are your mind you'd have no way of measuring it would you it's only because that mind is something that there is an awareness of that you can actually get these kind of statements around so that there's awareness or citta, a sensitivity a kind of a responsiveness so when the mind finishes when the mind stops there's still awareness and this is the awareness of the unconditioned the uncreated, the unpatterned and this is what the Buddha pointed to as the experience of deathlessness, the end of papancha, the end of proliferation the end of suffering is this now the, so the, but the beginning of that process is just to recognize as we meditate that any projection, any thought any emotion, any feeling any mind construction has an end to it so, you know and really that's a very simple and obvious thing that that everybody oh yeah of course you don't do it <laughs> or it's rare you know, we really have to train ourselves to, to recognize that that powerful feeling or passion, now it's gone. It's not there now. Because you don't notice when it's not there, do you? What the mind is trained to do is notice what's the conceivable, what's proliferatable around, what's what we can, you know, project onto. So as soon as something ends, then it's, it, it creates something else, or something else gets created. So often the ending of a thought is just, oh, desire comes up, or some kind of restlessness that, that just creates something else. And we remember, and we think, and we plan. The process of meditation is really is a lot of patience. But even if you notice the mind is wandering, we say the mind jumps like a monkey swinging through the trees you notice that it jumps from this point and then there's this in, perhaps infinitesimal space before the next point happens you know? so if the mind wanders it must go from one object to another object and there's that point which if we're attentive if we're calm we can recognize so a lot of the process of meditation is just calming down through techniques and practices but also calming down through wisdom that is as you as these age old scenarios get played over and over again in the mind 
we begin to yeah, I've been through this one. So we start to maybe, if, if we're not getting too irritated by it, we maybe approach it from a more dispassionate viewpoint. There it is again. I wonder what that's about. So that there's perhaps a more calm angle on that, where we begin to kind of listen to the, the thought processes. And you notice when you're really attentive with no bias or no angle on it, it calms down and you can notice the spaces in between the thoughts. That's, that's, in that, that's through that space. That's the door to the unconditioned. And training is, is very much a question of, of being able to do that. Now, why we don't do it? Because of these, what are called anutsaya, which are the latent tendencies. That is a, a continual magnetic attraction towards some kind of passion or another, some, some sort of aversion or irritation, some kind of view and way of interpreting things, some kind of conceit, this is what I am, some kind of wanting to be something or doubt, speculative, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, or just ignorance to, to, to forgetting, not noticing, distraction and uh, blindness, very powerful pulls, and those are the things that that begin to organize the mind into these painful, stressful, or disappointing patterns. Now, it's certainly, but in term, though the the this world is very. Uh, solid and real and seems to be endless you recognize that that itself is only that whole mood and the solidity of it is only something that's created by by mind by mind consciousness and consciousness is just itself is just a system consciousness is a system basic programming of, of sense experience. So the world of visual consciousness is a very different world from the world of hearing consciousness, isn't it? You, you know, if you sit with your eyes closed and listen to a room, it's different from looking at it, let alone if you try to smell it. We just kind of went to smelling. We just smell the shrine room now, with a vague you know, odors of incense or human sweat or wax or something or the other. A different experience, isn't it? From looking at it or thinking about it. This is Chitta Shrine. This is a holy place. This is a meditation room. Something like that. Different. So we can recognize just the limitations of consciousness as purely an interpretation an interpretation always give, leaves us with this sense of an alienated being on one end of it. And with awareness we can notice the different kinds of consciousness and the projections that arise within it. And we can notice that all of these projections and objects of consciousness and the fields of consciousness themselves are impermanent and changeable and that there's no self in it. It produces one rather than belongs to one.
And consciousness is like this. It's always like this. And as long as there's somebody stuck on one end of it, the Buddha said it's rather like a flayed cow. He says consciousness is like a cow with no skin on it. It's, you know, there's flies crawling on it. You know, and it's, it's, it's like that. It's like having your nerve endings hanging out. You're always like a cow with no skin. You're always irritated by gadflies, by things biting. So this is, what con- this is the way the Buddha said, this is what consciousness is. And if that's all there was, that would indeed be a miserable statement. But he says there isn't, there's more than consciousness, there's awareness. And you don't have to invest in, abide in, and get caught in the projections of consciousness, because that's what they are. They're fear projections, longing projections, alienation projections, jealousy projections, worry projections, doubt projections, I want to be projections, I dread being projections. And that's what we can, reckon, we can see, recognize in our, our experience of consciousness. But you don't have to believe in them. They are phantoms, they are projections only. Path of pra- if we, the path of practice in meditation is if we, if we can experience, begin to work with the ending of a thought or an emotion, or even just before it begins, once you've seen the ending of things, notice the beginning of them. You know, do you ever do that? Do you ever manage to catch it before it manifests? That is, somebody says something, and it's the kind of thing that, that you always react to, but this time you catch it. And instead of just going into that whole kind of inner, blah, 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 they didn't, how dare they, or you just, no. and you catch it and you don't do that. That's what's called the be- noticing the beginning and then that whole pattern doesn't have to arise. That reality, that apparent reality which you're always dominated by doesn't have to be there. You have a choice. You can get to the beginning of it and don't do that. You can, you can stop it. And this is something most of us can do sometime or another if we put our attention to it. Apart from that delightful magnetism of passion and aversion and view and conceit, just to let someone have a piece of my mind, you know, I'm really going to let him have it. How delightful that would be. I'm really going to prove my point. That kind of thing. The, the sweet promise of that and then the bitter aftertaste when we've done it <laughs> but then if it's like that just notice the ending ending of the fin, the ending of the sat the guilt or the worry or the well there we are so we know, we know the beginnings and ending are the beginning of that where we can recognize the, the awareness before it's patterned and after it and then it, it just goes back into this unformulated state. Now, if we, as we look at what we call our mind, in one way, we can see it as what? What is my mind? We look at it in one way as consciousness. There's me watching this thing, 
there's all kinds of stuff jumping around in it, hither and thither, airy and weird, lovely and, and horrible, and it comes and goes, and here I am watching it, thinking, whoa. You know? This is consciousness, this is, you know. But then if you're aware of jitta, what, what does that mean? It means the very, the very experience of knowing, the very experience of, of minding, you know, what does it feel just to be aware? And then there's no particular thing coming and going, there's just this field, like a field of knowing, a field of awareness. And it may be kind of, and occasionally it sort of vibrates and objects appear in it. But when it's just, when there's no, when it's not magnetically creating objects, it's just this field of awareness, and there's no, there's no sense of being anybody about it. It's very, it's very peaceful and, and clear. There's no, there's no form in it. This is called like the ground of the mind. Is this, and we as we cultivate meditation. We can come to that, and in our daily lives, just coming back to that ground. Here we are. It's this, or as Ajahn Sumedha says, the way it is. It's like this now. There's no if, and, should, but, why, it's just this now. And there's, of course, a tremendous power that wants to make it mean, make it into something, judge it, dismiss it, improve it, and yet really it's just this. So it's the way it is. It's the ground. And very often that when we're strung out on these massive projections, with the problem is coming back to the ground is so humiliating. Humiliating literally means coming back to the ground. It comes from the word humus. It seems coming down to the ground again. And yet, emotionally, to say being humiliated is a, we say is a very negative experience. And yet, humiliation is, an, is a really necessary part of the transformation. Is that the, that, all that projection has to be we have to experience some of the humiliation or humbling. Why that is such a, a, a theme in religious life, this humility, is we're actually recognizing our projections, our interpretations, our views and conceits, and then we let go of them. And when we let go of them, there's that moment of feeling, I've lost everything. You know? I've lost my world, I've lost everything. I've lost my hope, my longing, my intelligence, my power has been deprived, I've lost it. Bang! And we hit the ground. Now if we do that consciously and willingly, that coming to the ground is like coming home, back to sense. For most of us it's probably a bit of both. There's a kind of, some sort of willingness, but generally there's a lot of clawing, not wanting to go down on the ground again. Like a cat that's falling, you know, the way it spirals around trying to find something to hang on to, and then when you go down like that, Wump, you really hit the bottom, and then you, you know, from that position, you still haven't really got the message. You think, Why do they do that to me? 
as if were, you know they they did it. When it just means that your bubble burst or your projections no longer able to match up to reality. To go through that is, of course, the the. Uh, if we're able to go through that that gate, you know, it's lovely to be able to do it through meditation and through just samadhi. But I think for a lot of people that is is not going to be uh, <laughs> the only door. <laughs> a lot of it's going to be through the the hard way, or through the the humiliation experience. But if we can't bear that, if we can somehow recognize, even for a moment when we hit the ground, right, this is it, there's nothing to aim for, there's nothing to lose, it's all right being on the ground, it's actually nice being on the ground, it's so nice, I know what I do, you know, you can get up again, but if we can actually take that experience, then, you know, what's, the result is that you don't, you don't organize things in terms of no longer you don't organize things in terms of self you don't organize in terms of things into what I can get desire you don't organize things in terms of having control and, and power so that the ditti mana and tanha can die out as organizational principles around awareness and what's that what's it like when we've given that is it just a kind of devastated bleak state when there's no power no ability to have and get and belong and dominate and make things go my way beauty of it those who go through this in small ways or gone through it completely, recognize that the transformation is an organization in terms of love, of empathy. I don't know what it's like, you know, when you when you hit when you're on the ground willingly, you feel a deep I feel a deep sense of empathy with beings. Comradeship down on the ground fellow worms <laughs> so as I said love is not just an attraction but a sense of wholeness integration empathy isn't it it's not just a kind of bubbly emotional state but a, a, a vision of unity and of wholeness in which we feel we're part of things we're no longer longing and, and alienated and I want and I haven't got we're no longer trying to hold things down. We have a sense of being loved and being part of that love, that empathy, that wholeness. And this is the, this is what lib- enlightenment's like. This is what it is. The, the awareness of the mind is gone in that way, so that we recognise you know, when we truly empathise with with. Uh, when our experience is empathetic rather than projecting then instead of everything being separated from us everything that's apparently separate is part of us because we're relating to it we're allowing it to be the way it is 
we're accepting it the way it is. So, so there's nothing to long for because we have it all. It's like as long as you see something actually is really out there, you have to long for it or reject it, don't you? When you see it's really just here, you know, then there's a sense of empathy rather than longing or separation or rejection. <coughs> the world is, can be experienced just as this, this here-ness, this immediacy in which there's no separation and no longing, no aversion, no self-created. And the objects of consciousness can be experienced lovingly rather than through the medium of control, power, <coughs> alienation, fear and all that sort of stuff that goes on.